Our scripture reading today is from Galatians 2, 11 through 16. This can be found on page 973 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one in the pew home as a gift from us. Galatians 2, 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to the Brookside campus. My name is Bill Gorman. I serve as the campus pastor here and Uh, Whether you've been here for years or this is your very first Sunday, uh, I want to welcome you here. I'm so glad that you're here this morning, and especially if you uh, are looking for a church home, we're really thankful that you're exploring here with us at Christ Community. I know that isn't always an easy thing to do. And uh, as we turn now to the scriptures, uh, this passage that Carolyn has just read for us, I'd love to take a moment and pray and ask for God's favor as we study his word together. So let me do that now in prayer. Father in heaven, may you teach us that your instruction is perfect, renewing our lives, that your testimony is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise, that your precepts are right, making the heart glad, your commandments are radiant, making our eyes light up. So today, Father, As we look at your precious word, would we be renewed? Would we be made wise? Would we be glad? Would we be enlightened? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, late last Sunday night, uh, I returned uh, from a 10-day visit to our ministry partners in northeastern Kenya. And uh, I had the chance to travel with, uh, with an incredible team of Jose Thompson and Lisa Heimbach, Megan White. Uh, it was an incredible trip for us in, in many ways. And uh, I know that, that many, many of you were, were praying for us. And uh, I can tell you with full confidence that we, we sense those prayers regularly throughout our journey. And over a course of, of a trip like that, uh, there are so many different things that you learn and that you want to share when you come back. And, and we look forward to sharing those things with you in the coming weeks and months. But one of the things that struck me uh, most from the trip was the tangible expression, the tangible experience of the reality of God's radical welcome and inclusion. Um, Two Sundays ago, I had the opportunity to preach at Evangelical Victory Church. And Evangelical Victory Church, uh, it's it's a missional engine. It's a sending church. It's really the birthplace of the 11th Hour Network, our partner there. And it's situated in the, in the second largest slum in Nairobi. And it's a church made up of, of many different people from different languages and tribal groups. Uh, in, in fact, in the service that I preached in, my sermon was simultaneously being translated into four other languages. 
in that room, there were, were different tribes present. There were Baranas and Samburus and Somalis and Ethiopians. There were different languages clearly being spoken in that space. Uh, there were different backgrounds. You know, some of the people there had grown up in, in, in Christian homes, but the vast majority of people at Evangelical Victory Church have come from a Muslim background, meaning that they've often left a lot, including their, their families, to follow Christ. But because of the good news of the gospel, they had gathered in one place to celebrate their adoption into one new family, the family of the local church. And this is what the gospel does. Uh, we, we saw this back in, in Acts chapter 2 when we were looking at the beginning of the book of Acts in our, in our last series, when the Holy Spirit descended on God's people, the church, at the very beginning. This is right after Jesus has ascended into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit, and right from that very first moment, the gospel is proclaimed simultaneously into different languages all at once. We're reminded there that, that there is no one language or culture that has pride of place in Christianity. There's no one language or culture that is, is first among equals in Christianity. But in Acts chapter 2, we're still dealing with the reality of a, a church that's made up pretty much exclusively of Jewish people. However, by the time you get to Acts chapter 10... God uses the Apostle Peter to welcome in Gentiles to this new community, this new family. That is, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And it's after that moment that the term Christian is coined. Because you see, up until this point, Christianity was just considered a, a sort of a sect or a branch of Judaism. It was just a kind of a different way of, of being Jewish. That's how people from the outside looked at it. But now that you have both Jews and non-Jews alike in the, in the movement, in the Jesus movement, there had to be a new term coined. And it was in Antioch, the very city that was mentioned in our scripture reading just a moment ago, it was in Antioch that the, the, the believers were first called Christians. They were first called Christians. And, and it wasn't the, the Christians, it wasn't the believers that came up with that name for themselves. They, they were first called that by outsiders because they couldn't make sense of, you, you couldn't just call them Jews, you couldn't call them Gentiles. They were together in this new family and there needed a new language uh, to talk about this. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo, in his excellent commentary on the book of Galatians, he, he points this out. He says, the church at Antioch was a laboratory for Jewish-Gentile relationships in the early church. Hence, indeed, a new race of people. Neither Jews nor Gentiles was being created, requiring the coining of a new name for them, Christians. But what we see, what we discover when we look at the book of Galatians, that we began studying last week, Pastor Paul began our study into this book, which is written to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. That's why it's called Galatians. It's being written to this group of churches in a region called Galatia. What we discover is that this one and only gospel, this gospel that created so much unity, of which there is no other gospel, was being threatened. That the churches from the Galatian region were being drawn away from the truth of the gospel. Again, this, this gospel that had created such incredible unity that actually new language had to be created to describe what was happening. This unity and diversity was about to be undermined by hypocrisy. 
You see, God's plan from the very beginning was always to create a big multi-ethnic family. From the very first part of, of Genesis and this promise to Abraham, this father of many nations, inviting all people into this work that God was doing. And the gospel of justification by faith, that's what the, the book of Galatians is about, about faith apart from the law, is what makes that kind of family possible. Because Paul's whole point in the book of Galatians is it isn't that you are keeping some set of Jewish traditions and cultural practices that makes you a Christian. No, it's, it's that you're trusting in faith in Jesus. That you don't have to keep a set of Jewish laws in order to be a Christian. No, it's, it's faith in Jesus alone. It's the gospel that shapes all of the Christian's life. I think sometimes we can view uh, Christianity and, and the gospel in particular as just the, the ABCs, the entryway into Christian life, the very basics. And then, well, okay, we've got that down. Jesus loves me. He died for me. Now, now can I get on to the, 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 the real meat and substance of Christianity? But that's to misunderstand what the gospel is. The, the gospel is the very heart of the Christian faith. It's not just the ABCs. It's the A to Z. It's everything. You see, becoming a Christian isn't, isn't just like downloading a, a new app onto your phone, something you just sort of add to your existing life. No, no becoming a Christian is like switching from iOS to Android or, or vice versa. You're actually changing the entire operating system on which everything else runs. You see, the gospel isn't just a, an app in your life that you draw on when you need it. It is actually the, it, it, when it gets into your heart, it becomes the very thing on which the rest of your life operates and runs. And here in Galatians chapter 2, Paul confronts head-on the hypocrisy that is threatening to undermine the truth of the gospel in this local church community. Uh, I think it can be easy for us to look around at the world today and to think that the greatest threats to the gospel, to Christianity, to the church, are external. Maybe here in the West, you, you think about the, the, the movement to, to becoming more and more of a secular culture, that, that, that threat from the outside, or in, in other parts of the world, the, the threat of, of sort of a militant Islam is, is a threat to the gospel of the local church. But, but in reality, the greatest threats to the church often come from the inside, not the outside. And so, this morning we want to look at the threat of, of, a, of a gospel hypocrisy. A threat that comes from the inside of the church. This morning we're going to see the origin of that threat. We're going to see the persistence of the threat. And then also the remedy to it. So the origin, the persistence, and the remedy. We see the origin of the threat in verses 11 through 14, some of the verses that we heard read before the message earlier. And, and in this passage, Paul, who's writing this letter to these churches in Galatians, Paul names this person Cephas, who he confronts to his face. He calls out, Cephas is just another name for the apostle Peter, who was a, a prominent leader in the early church. Paul says, I confronted Peter to his face. And where does the confrontation take place? Antioch, the very place where Christians were first called Christians because of the radical unity within the midst of diversity that required new language being created, that is the place where this confrontation takes place. 
And Paul says, I oppose Cephas to his face. I oppose the apostle Peter to his face. Why? Because Peter was failing to live in line with the gospel. He's turning back on the very heart of the good news of God's rescue. You see, in Acts chapter 10, which we haven't gotten there yet in our study of Acts, we'll start up there when we return to Acts in a few weeks. In Acts chapter 10, Peter had had a vision from God, a vision that showed him that the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, were to be welcomed into the community of faith in a way that they were no longer unclean in any way. They were to be welcomed in as full equals in God's family. Adopted sons and daughters, just like the Jews. And, and in that moment in Acts chapter 10, Peter rejoiced with this news. And then later on in Acts chapter 15, Peter strongly defended the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's family, saying, God has made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So don't add any burdens to them. Don't make them become like Jews. Peter is a leader in this movement of including Gentiles. He staunchly defends their rights to be included in this family on the basis of of faith. But then something changed for Peter. Something changed for Peter in Antioch. Paul tells us here in Galatians chapter 2 that when, when Peter went down to Antioch, his practice became out of line with his preaching that Peter actually started separating himself from the Gentiles, from the non-Jews, the very people who he had so strongly argued on the basis of God's promise and plan and vision should be welcomed in to this community. You know, if it wasn't so, so, so serious, you could, you could almost sort of laugh at it as a kind of middle school lunchroom behavior. That Peter, who was one of the cool kids, one of the popular kids, had also started to become friends with some of the not-so-cool kids and started sitting with them in the lunchroom. But then, you know, the, all the, the, the cool kids from the lacrosse team walk in. And, and Peter doesn't want to be seen sitting at their table anymore. And so, so he gets up quickly and he, and he goes and joins the other, other cool kids. You know, all of a sudden, Peter has shifted his behavior regarding his interactions with the Gentiles simply because he feared that these other Jewish people might think less of him. All those old cultural identities that have been ingrained so deeply come rising up for Peter. And again, eating together in the first century culture of Peter and Paul was was even a much more intimate act than than sharing a table at the lunchroom today. I was reminded of this when when we were in Kenya. There's a lot of crossover in, in Ethiopian and Kenyan uh, cultures and peoples. And so one day we were eating Ethiopian food. And when you eat Ethiopian food, uh, you, you, they bring out a big tray, right? And, and everyone shares uh, this one platter of food. You take your hand, you dip it in, you take some of that bread, some of that injera, but everyone is eating with their hands out of the same dish. This was a common way of eating in, in the first century as well. And so to share a meal with someone You're literally dipping your hand into the same plate, the same bowl. So imagine if you feel like someone at the table is unclean, is dirty, is less than. You don't want them placing their hand in the dish with you. Now, I don't think that Peter had actually changed his beliefs here. 
I don't think he had changed his theology in this moment. But he had allowed those old patterns to change his behavior. He allowed fear to change his behavior. And it resulted in an immediately reclassifying of people and groups based on ethnicity and cultural preference. And Douglas Moo is so helpful here. Uh, he points out that Peter probably viewed this action of separating uh, as, as a tactically wise accommodation to the concerns of stricter Jewish Christians. Oh, I don't want these other people who aren't as, uh, you know, they aren't as enlightened as me. I don't want to make them, them stumble. Paul, however, sees it as a, the matter very differently. For him, Peter's act sends the signal that Gentiles in Christ are not truly and fully cleansed from sin in Christ, they remain morally stained and must be avoided, and that they can finally remove that stain only by themselves taking on Jewish customs. This is the threat to the gospel that Paul is so concerned about. The threat to the gospel is that when any Christian in any age in any time says, you must become like me in my culture if you're going to really be a Christian. You're really going to be a Christian you need to like our kind of music or look like us or belong in our neighborhood or talk like we do. It's essentially saying, you must meet me on my terms. I'm not going to meet you on your terms. This is the kind of threat to the gospel that we're seeing here. And, and specifically when Christians live in such a way that they, they feel that because of their own culture or location or, 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 or race or ethnicity that they are actually superior to other people. And this, this way of life actually undermines the gospel itself. It's a stepping off the path of the gospel into something else completely. The, the Jewish Christians are saying to Gentiles, I'm only going to meet you on Jewish terms. You have to join my race, my culture, my ethnicity for me to eat with you. For me to, sure, maybe I'll, I'll think of you as a Christian, but if I'm really going to have a relationship with you, I need you to become like me. And, and right here is where we see this, this origin of this internal threat to the gospel. It's seen in the blatant, cowardly hypocrisy of Peter, whose behavior was turning sisters and brothers back into outsiders, back into others. In a way, you could see this moment as, as almost Peter's fourth denial of Jesus. You know, we know from the Gospels that Peter, right before Jesus' death, denies Jesus three times. But here, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter had heard directly from Jesus in a vision in Acts chapter 10 uh, for about the Gentiles. Jesus says, Peter, what God has made clean, don't call him pure. And again, Peter had defended the Gentiles in Acts 15, saying, make no distinction between them. But, but now he's turning back on all of that, on Jesus' direct command to him. Peter was once again denying Jesus and what Jesus said to be true. You know, I think it can be easy for us in a moment like this to sort of look down on Peter and kind of shake our heads and say, come on, Peter. This is just Peter being Peter again. You know, get your head in the game. What are you doing? Really, Peter? Come on. 
Or, or it'd be easy to kind of look back and say, okay, this Jew-Gentile thing, that's a, that's a first century thing. You know, that's an interesting point of, of history that Paul had to, you know, deal with there in the early foundations of the church. But, but the reality is that that threat still persists today. This isn't just a thing from the past. The threat of, of gospel hypocrisy that divides the church and turns people's into, turn people into others rather than the brothers and sisters is still a very real internal threat to the gospel today. Alan Jacobs, who's a, a scholar at uh, Baylor University in his wonderful book, How to Think, a Survival Guide for a World at Odds, which is a fantastic book. It's, it's short. I'd highly recommend it. Um, he does a great job of showing the persistence of the threat of turning people into others. And early on in the book, Jacobs picks up a term coined by Susan Harding. The, the term is the repugnant cultural other. The repugnant cultural other. And he argues that all of us have a repugnant cultural other. Those who we divide against and say, those people are not like me. Not only are they not like me, I find them, I just, I can't stand them. And he goes on to point out, he says, everybody today, everyone today seems to have a repugnant cultural other. And everyone's repugnant cultural other is on social media somewhere. And this is a profoundly unhealthy situation. It's unhealthy because it prevents us from recognizing others as neighbors, even when they are quite literally our neighbors. Later he goes on to say, if I'm consumed by this belief that the person over there is both other and repugnant, I may never discover my favorite television program is also his favorite television program. That we like some of the same books, though for not precisely the same reasons, that we both know what it is to nurse a loved one through a long illness. Do you feel the weight, the truth in Alan Jacobs' observation? Right, we, we see it in the unique racial divide between blacks and whites in the American story. It's traced back to the historic and, and systematic, systemic institution of slavery, uh, of Jim Crow laws, of unjust housing practices, and, and, and redlining that continue to have effects today. We see it in the stigma placed on, on Muslims who are in our country who, who shouldn't be here. But, but what an incredible opportunity to, to, to love Muslims with the gospel of Jesus. They're here. You don't, you don't have to travel to another country. They're moving here. What an amazing opportunity for the gospel. See, the demonization of, of people from different political parties and persuasions. The fear and contempt of immigrants and refugees within our borders. The, the way that Christians talk about other Christians from other denominations or that other church. Now you can call it racism and bigotry, prejudice, xenophobia, identity politics. Whatever we name it, it's all rooted in a divisive and devastating classification of the other, the repugnant other. And we all do this at some level. We all have some other person, individual, or people group that we deem as other. And you see, apart from the gospel, all of us, in, in our brokenness as human beings, part of what it means to be a broken human being, which is to be a human being, is to be a broken person, right? Part of what it means to be broken as a human being is that we are 
desperately looking for acceptance. We're desperately looking for someone to tell us that we're okay, that we belong. And outside of the gospel, one of the primary places that we look for that kind of acceptance and welcome and belonging and affirmation is in our cultural, racial, ethnic groups. We look around at the other people who look and act and talk like us to tell us that we're okay, that we belong. And so often then that identity, that acceptance, is defined against the fact that we are not like that other group, whether that other group is Republicans or Democrats or blacks or whites or old or young, whatever the group might be. One of the easiest and most subtle ways of getting that sense of security is by viewing our group, whatever that is, even our sports team, right, as superior to someone else's. When Pastor Tim Keller writes this, he says, one of the most common self-justifying systems is to convince ourselves of the superiority of our own race or ethnicity. And this happens when we attach moral significance to things that are only matters of cultural preference, such as the difference between time-centric versus event-centric culture. And And he says the gospel radically undermines all of this. This is why Paul views Peter's behavior as so threatening to the gospel. Because notice what Paul says in his rebuke of Peter. You know, he doesn't tell Peter that he's acting, you know, Peter, you're not being nice. You're acting unkind. Or he doesn't, doesn't say, Peter, you're, you're not being very politically correct right now in this behavior. No, no what, is, what does he say? Actually, in the first instance, he doesn't even say, Peter, you're acting sinfully, though he certainly is. But what Paul leads with is not any of those things. Uh, What does he lead with? Verse 14, look at the first part of it again. But when I, Paul, saw their conduct, Peter, Barnabas' conduct, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. See, Peter's uh, labeling of a group of people as other and separating himself from them was not just a social issue. It wasn't just a culture issue. It was a gospel issue. That's what he leads with. Peter's actions of treating Gentiles as other people created a a racial culture with that, according to Paul, was not in step with the gospel. So what does this mean? How is this behavior tied to the good news? We keep saying the word gospel. Gospel just means good news. The good news of Jesus' life, death, his resurrection. How does he tie this? The reason why this categorization and treatment of people as others is not in step with the gospel is because it undermines the fundamental truth of the gospel that we're only accepted on the basis of faith in Jesus alone. You know, Peter is subtly saying that there's something, this cultural practice, my cultural identity is actually part of my justification, part of how I belong before God. And, P, and, and Paul, the whole purpose of his letter in Galatians is that there's absolutely no way that you are accepted by God except for your faith in Jesus alone. So again, this isn't just a, a social issue, a cultural issue. This is a gospel issue. I mean, look at what, what Paul says in verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, You're not justified by keeping the Jewish law, by adopting Jewish cultural practices, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of law, because by the works of law, no one will be justified. 
There is nothing about our racial, cultural, ethnic identity that compels God to love us and justify us. And these identity markers, therefore, cannot be used to discredit or disqualify anyone from being a part of this community. So why do we divide along these lines or exclude along these lines? Well, when we, we, when we do that, we're showing we haven't really believed the gospel at the deepest level yet. And, and we aren't just being unkind in those moments. We aren't just being unenlightened in those moments. We're actually undermining the very heart of the good news of what Jesus has come to do. Because he's, here's the big idea of this text, the big idea of this passage, that there are no others at the foot of the cross. There are no others at the foot of the cross. You see, the gospel is the great leveler. In the gospel, you don't have to have the right language or the right culture or the right color of your skin or enough money or live in the right part of town. The gospel tells us that regardless of who we are, we are all sinners. That's the great leveling effect of the gospel. Sinners are who are in desperate need of a Savior. Jews are sinners. Gentiles are sinners. Peter is a sinner. Paul is a sinner. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And we all, on the basis of that common need of rescue, find common ground at the foot of the cross in the gospel. In the gospel at the foot of the cross, there is no ground for superiority whatsoever. And this is the glorious good news. And it is indeed the remedy to the threat of gospel hypocrisy. It's the remedy because all, I think all of us, we want to think, I always want to think, I, I'm a lot like Paul here. I would stand up, right? do this. But, but the reality is we all have a lot more Peter in us than we want to probably admit. I know I do. We all need Paul's warning to Peter. You see, the, the remedy to the threat against the gospel is the gospel. The realization that there are no others at the foot of the cross. It's not a matter of, of adding something else to the gospel that's the remedy. So now we have this problem of, of racial or ethnic or linguistic or, or socioeconomic divide. Now what, do we, now what do we do to solve that? No, we have to go back into the gospel for that. It's not a matter of adding something else, but of going deeper in. And again, how does, how does Paul address Peter here? He doesn't shame him. He doesn't say shame on you. He doesn't lay on guilt. That, that's what the law does. And Paul's saying the law doesn't work that way. It can't change our hearts. What's the remedy to this? It's not more law. It's not more shame. It's not more no, no, no. You shouldn't do that. It's Peter, remember the gospel. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember how he treated you when you were the ultimate other to him. How he welcomed you. The remedy to this is not something in addition to the gospel but of a rediscovering of the gospel itself. So, so what might that look like in our community? And we need to do a whole series on this. What might that look like in our community? Just the first few steps. First, it looks like a deeper repentance. Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he uh, nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg just over 500 years ago, the first of those theses was the entire life of the Christian is a life of repentance. Christians don't just repent one time, sort of like, God, forgive me for my sins, and I'm all done. 
The Christian life is one of regular repentance, of going back in deeper, understanding new ways in which we didn't even realize that we were turning against God and continually asking for forgiveness. We need to name and, and, and own the places where we are turning people into repugnant cultural others. Whether it be on the basis of race or culture or language or background or socioeconomic status. To look deep in our own hearts. To really be honest with how we think about how we treat people who are different than us. Individually and also collectively, where do we see this happening? Because again, you see this divide between Jews and Gentiles. It wasn't just a matter of sort of like individual Jews disliking individual Gentiles. No, there was a whole system constructed to separate uh, Jews from Gentiles and to reinforce that separation. And so part of the remedy of that is not just the individuals, kidding with individuals, but actually a tearing down the dividing wall of hostility, bringing these two groups together. And the same is true of so many of the racial and socioeconomic divides in our country. It isn't just a matter of individuals disliking individuals, but of whole systems that, that have been constructed that keep us separate. The church must lead the way into deeper repentance, both of individual and collective sin. We need to call it out in ourselves, to call it out in one another when we see it. We have a responsibility to, to seek that kind of repentance in, in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, but absolutely here in our church family when we see one another walking not in step with the gospel. And let me just say here this morning, if you're here and, and you are someone who is prejudiced or, or, or bigoted, we want you here. We want you in this community because the, the church is not a place for, for perfect people who have it all figured out, don't have any problems. The church is for people who are in desperate need of rescue. But we love you enough that we won't allow that to persist in your life. I hope you love us enough. You love me enough to call those things out when you see it in me. So it looks like deeper repentance. Second, it, it looks like longer tables. You see, other people will remain others until we seek to understand their experiences, until we seek to welcome them into our lives, to build mutual hospitality. We will remain homogenous in our communities unless we allow people to come into our lives and go into theirs. Then without that, our prejudices go unchallenged. That's why we need to practice hospitality. Um, Tralia Newell writes this. She says, Knowing others who are not like you is one way to display to the world that we are unified in Christ through the gospel. It serves as a powerful picture of the transforming work of the gospel. So a deeper repentance, longer tables, and finally we need a better hope. We need a hope of the forgiveness in the gospel that removes our sin and shame. Because remember, no life is transformed by being shamed, by being guilted, by having the law placed on. It does not work. It takes the good news of the gospel, that Jesus loves you, that he gave himself for you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how, who you've hated or, or who you've excluded, that 
You are loved by Jesus. You see, one of the thoughts that haunts me regularly whenever I think about this conversation is wondering that what if I had lived in the Deep South during the pre-Civil War period or during the Jim Crow period would I have stood against slavery and the injustice of it? Or would I have just gone along with what was comfortable and normal in that cultural moment? And I like to think, of course, that I would have stood up, that I would have been the lone voice in my town or my church who saw it differently, who, who would have defended the rights of those but I shudder because I know that it's far more likely that I wouldn't have. Because all of us tend to go with what's easy, with what's comfortable. How do you deal with that kind of guilt, that kind of shame? Not by, not by the law. The only thing that can remove that guilt and shame is the hope of the gospel. The hope that, that Jesus, the righteous one, he's the only person who is truly morally superior. Jesus is the only moral, morally superior people, person who's ever walked on the earth. Jesus is the only one who's ever walked on the face of the earth who can say, I'm truly, I'm better than you. He's the only one who's truly gave, clean, who gave himself for me, the unclean. You see, Paul looks at Peter, at the church, at us, and says, how could you ever consider someone else unclean? Have how could you ever consider yourself superior to someone else? Don't you remember what Jesus did for you? He's the righteous one, the clean one who gave himself for you. Again, Paul doesn't say to Peter, how dare you, Peter? He doesn't say, Peter, you need to stop being afraid. You need to get your act together. No, he says, Peter, don't you remember what Jesus did for you? Remember the gospel, Peter. Don't you remember Jesus loved you and gave himself for you even when you were the ultimate other to him, his enemy? We're told specifically what Christ did for Peter. Peter, who had denied Jesus multiple times. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter is out fishing. He hadn't caught anything. And he sees Jesus on the shore and tells him, Peter, put your net on the other side, and pulls up a bunch of fish. And Peter recognizes that it's Jesus, and he, he runs to the shore. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do for this person who had treated him as other, who had denied him multiple times? Jesus welcomes Peter back in. He cooks him breakfast. He shares a meal with him. He shares a table, a dish with him. He ate with the one who denied him. He gave himself for Peter. He gave himself for you. That's the message that healed the divisions in Antioch 2,000 years ago. And it's the message that can heal us and our divisions if we are willing to believe it and let it change us. Are we willing to walk in step with the gospel? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for our church. I pray for the Brookside campus. I pray for all of Christ's community across our city, Shawnee, Olathe, Leewood, downtown.
pray that you would make us into a church that is so saturated with the gospel that we confront and, and welcome the confrontation of, of, of division and sin wherever we see it. Would you make us the kind of community that so confounds the city in which it's, it's dwelling that new language has to be created to describe the reality of what's happening? Forgive us for where we fall short in that. We fall short so regularly and so often. God, have mercy on us. Would be be renewed by the truth and the hope of the gospel, finding our identity and our hope in it alone, in Jesus alone. Would we be reminded that at the foot of the cross there is no other, that there is no pride, there is no superiority in the communion line, only desperate need for rescue and forgiveness and the joy that comes in that. I pray this in Jesus' name.